0: Hello, lovely listener. I'm your host, Lindsay, and you're listening to Two Cents Podcast, your Audible Anthology. This episode is a deep dive into feminism in poetry. Historically, literature has been a male-dominated sphere, and any poetry written by a woman could be seen as feminist. However, we will discover the progression of this ideology and the literature it was born of. With that being said, cue the intro. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to brief you on some things. For one, this was a long-term project and I feel it necessary to say that my mindset when I started is completely different from how I finished. And I give credit to knowledge. As vague as that sounds, it truly is power. So you may or may not pick up that change as the episode progresses. As this episode is about feminism, I do talk a bit about sex and gender. There are parts where I use them interchangeably, but now I am aware of their differences and acknowledge them as separate entities. I am very open to correction if I misinterpret something or get a fact wrong, so you are welcome to check me up on my claims. There may be a slight change in how I sound that's due to me recording the episode in segments at different times of the day over many days. You can find the episode transcript on the website along with a little gallery slideshow thing where you can put a face to the poets and thinkers that I mention in the, in the episode. I'm not tech savvy, so this is a problem I'm still working on. But if you view the gallery on a desktop, you'll be able to see captions of the photographs but that's not the case when you view it on your mobile. Hopefully that'll change soon. If it helps, I've arranged the photos in the order that I mention the poets or thinkers, so I think you'd be able to put two and two together. If you haven't already, please sign up for the newsletter to be notified when an episode is released and be sure to confirm your subscription. I have added timestamps or time markers. I'm not sure if they are if they'll appear on the platform you're using, but they are on the website and they will be on YouTube in a few days when I upload the episode there. That out of the way, let us begin. First and foremost, let's talk about isms, because we will have many more poetic inquiries on various isms in episodes to come. So, what is this suffix about? As a noun, an ism is defined as a distinctive practice, system, or philosophy, typically a political ideology or an artistic movement. As a suffix, it can denote an action, as seen in the word criticism, the quality or state of a subject, as seen in the word pessimism, an ideology, like this episode's topic, feminism, or something pathological. Again. Feminism. Cracks aside, the real example is necrophilism. Now, I am crazy about etymology, so I'm going to ramble a bit about the origins of the word. Ism traces back to Latin, specifically the suffix isma or ismus, which have trickled down to the Romance and some Germanic tongues. Other sources have stated that it is derived from the ancient Greek suffix ismos, which entwined with the Latin isma and ismus, once more influencing the languages we know today. Isma, ismus or ismos mean an imitation of or siding with, say, an artistic movement, a behavior, philosophy, religion, social movement or theory, as was mentioned in the definition. I think it's also important to note that an ism typically refers to a concept on a broader scale, I'm probably not the only one, but the mention of certain isms used to rub me the wrong way. Reflecting on it now, it was pretty ignorant of me to get provoked, only knowing or hearing about the surface of something. So this episode is on feminism. We are yet to explore the various waves of feminism and the isms that fall under it. Ramble over, let's get into the history. Feminism is broadly defined as the belief in economic, political and social equality of the sexes. It's widely thought to be a Western creation. However, it has made its way around the world, attending to women's rights and interests. When I think of the first feminist movement, the first idea that comes to mind is the women's suffrage in the 20th century. But feminism or feminist thought goes further back than that. In the 3rd century BCE, Roman women filled the Capitoline Hill, which was a fortress and asylum, blocking all of its entrances in protest against a consul's rule to limit their use of expensive goods. The consul commented on the women protesting and is quoted as saying, "If they are victorious now, what will they not attempt? As soon as they begin to be your equals," They will have become your superiors. That's remarkable, seeing that for a large part of history, women's liberties were incredibly restricted. Public life was solely for men, and even as it opened up to women, they were always in the shadow of a male. For quite some time, feminism was kept alive by individuals or small groups who were more outspoken. And its ideals were expressed largely in publications rather than being sounded off. Christine de Pison is one such individual, a French feminist thinker from the 15th century who authored feminist works, including The Tale of Joan of Arc, the iconic Maid of Orleans. From reading her quotes, she placed great emphasis on women and girls being educated to the same degree as men and boys, that they may delight in knowledge and use it to appreciate the world around them as much as men and boys could. Here are some quotes from her book titled The Book of the City of Ladies. If it were customary to send daughters to school like sons, and if they were then taught the natural sciences, they would learn as thoroughly and understand the subtleties of all the arts and sciences as well as sons. Another quote of hers reads, The man or the woman in whom resides greater virtue is the higher. Neither the loftiness nor the lowliness of a person lies in the body according to the sex, but in the perfection of conduct and virtue. This was quite profound, but it's obvious now that conduct or virtue is not a matter of gender, but it makes you think about how men and women were viewed in regards to their ability to uphold virtue in that period. That being so, let's delve into the first wave of feminism.
1: When a new century was born in 1900, woman's place was in the home. Few sports and few jobs were considered ladylike enough for her attention. The amply padded and well corseted young woman who strolled in New York's Easter parade of 1903 was supposed to be a companion, not a competitor to man. We're
2: clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes, though we adore men. In that as a group they're rather stupid Mrs. Banks cast off the shackles of yesterday shoulder to shoulder into the fray our daughter's daughters will adore us and they'll sing in grateful chorus well done sister suffragette be that as it may
0: The first wave of feminism began around the 15th century. It is the longest one that was kept alive by a small number of thinkers until it gained traction in the late 19th century and early 20th century. The main objective of feminists in this era was to undo the prevailing perspective that women were property. This perspective prevented women from receiving an education and thus being involved in public life. Essentially, they were born and bred to be wed. Laura Cherita, who succeeded Christine de Pison, was a 15th century Venetian feminist writer who wrote a volume of letters titled Collected Letters of a Renaissance Feminist. The letters state the complaints of women regarding their denial of education, their suppression under marriage, and the superficiality of women's clothing. A quote from one of the letters reads Empty women who strive for no good but exist to adorn themselves. These women of majestic pride, fantastic coiffures, outlandish ornament, and necks bound with gold or pearls bear the glittering symbols of their captivity to men. On one hand, There is some othering and generalization in this quote by deeming the women who adorn themselves as empty and regarding the gold and pearls they wear as glittering symbols of their captivity to men. Othering isn't a good route for unification, but on the other hand, she is revealing that this was the apex for women to be objects destined for frivolous adornment. Significantly, both women lost their husbands earlier in their lives, and most of their popular works were produced after the fact. Eventually, literary works in defense of women became a genre, which was mostly concentrated in Venice and France. The main narrative continued to be the demand for women's education as well as the demand for women to be seen as moral and intellectual equals to men. However, on the backdrop of a religious society. Most feminist writers produced religious pieces and used religion to justify their stances. Listen to this quote by Venetian poet Moderata Fonte. Men were created before women. But that doesn't prove their superiority. Rather, it proves ours. For they were born out of the lifeless earth in order that we could be born out of living flesh. And what's so important about this priority in creation anyway? When we are building, we lay foundations on the ground first, things of no intrinsic merit or beauty, before subsequently raising up sumptuous buildings and ornate palaces. Lowly seeds are nourished in the earth, and then later the ravishing blooms appear. Lovely roses blossom forth and scented narcissi. This is from a book published after her death by her uncle, titled The Worth of Women, wherein is clearly revealed their nobility and their superiority to men. For most of her life, she produced religious pieces such as The Passion of Christ, a poem wherein she focuses on the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene. She was noted by her husband to have been an outstanding homemaker. Once she settled down, she willfully let go of her literary career to focus on building a home and family. She later succumbed to complications following the birth of her fourth child. So despite there being anthologies of medieval feminist works, a woman's role in society didn't change for a long time. That was until feminist thought got to England in the 16th century, where the true nature of womanhood was being debated. This also resulted in secularist thought joining the conversation. Cue the Enlightenment. Never before had there been a unified movement of women demanding reform. The world as they knew it was changing, but only significantly for men. The wives, sisters and daughters of the common man were bystanders to monuments like the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in France, and still regarded as Silly and subordinates in the mind of philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Though the man on the street was declared an equal by law, this law still excluded women. The centuries-old conversation on equal education and opportunity prevailed with Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley being a notable speaker on this issue in England. Much like her other half, Percy Bysshe Shelley, she was a prolific writer. Here's a poem by her, titled, Stanzas, O oh, come to me in dreams, my love. Oh, come to me in dreams, my love, I will not ask a dearer bliss. Come with the starry beams, my love, And press mine eyelids with thy kiss. T'was thus, as ancient fables tell, Love visited a Grecian maid till she disturbed the sacred spell and woke to find her hopes betrayed. But gentle sleep shall veil my sight and Psyche's lamp shall darkling be when, in the visions of the night, thou dost renew thy vows to me. Then come to me in my dreams, my love. I will not ask a dearer bliss Come with the starry beams, my love, and press mine eyelids with thy kiss. There is nothing particularly feminist about this piece. It's merely a sample from a woman who believed that making women rational and free would make them more virtuous and wise. Our first feminist poet is Afra Bain a 17th century poet and playwright. She wrote 15 plays and is regarded to be one of the best playwrights of the Restoration period. Her poems weren't as great, but the poetry in her plays fared better than individual pieces. A little bit on her life. She was born in 1640. Her earliest years are a blur, however at age 15 she married a wealthy Dutch merchant who had connections the monarch Charles II. He passed away during the Great Plague in 1665. Following her husband's death, Bain was appointed as a spy in Holland by the monarch and created the name Astria, which she also published under. Unfortunately, the spy gig backfired and her superiors weren't paying her, so she had to devise all sorts of plans to get back to England, which involved drowning herself in debt. Her outstanding payments landed her in jail, but not long after, she was assisted by her future lover, a lawyer named John Hoyle, who was the muse of many of her sonnets. After leaving prison, she was, quote, determined to dedicate the rest of her life to pleasure and to letters and to trust her own devices, rather than to rely upon others whom she could not trust. She went on to have a career with many ups and downs, the downs being influenced by how superiors felt about her work. One incident involved a prologue in one of her plays that offended the monarch's opponents. Their reaction caused her economic hardship, which forced her to take a hiatus. She is quoted as saying, If I must not, because of my sex, have this freedom, I lay down my quill and you shall hear no more from me. Critics and biographers have stated that the most attractive quality of her lyrical pieces is their spontaneity, demonstrating to the reader or theatre-goer that the best poetry doesn't need to be centred around learning, but can succeed because the lines are memorable, singable, and direct. Now I will read to you the Willing Mistress by Aphra Bain. Amentus led me to a grove, where all the trees did shade us. The sun itself thought it had strove, but it could not have betrayed us. The place secured from human eyes, no other fear allows, but when the winds that gently rise, do kiss the yielding boughs. Down there we sat upon the moss, and I'd begin to play a thousand amorous tricks to pass the heat of all the day. And many kisses he did give, and I returned the same, which made me willing to receive that which I dare not name. His charming eyes no aid required to tell their softening tale. On her, that was already fired, t'was easy to prevail. He did but kiss and clasp me round, whilst those his thoughts expressed, and laid me down gently on the ground. Ah, who can guess the rest? That was a pretty fun read. For all she had endured, she had quite the wit. Bain makes some interesting Allusions in this piece that defy the meek and modest disposition of a regular 17th century woman. Her illusions summon a discussion on female sensuality and the freedom of expression it was allowed. Seeing that it was a 17th century, it was most likely taboo, but it proves to be an important discussion in feminism. Bain reminds me somewhat of Beatrice from Shakespeare's "Much Ado about Nothing which was published in the same century. I consider Beatrice to be a feminist character. Much like her, Bain had a liberal take on love and marriage for her time. She was full of wit, but retained a girlish spirit. By the 18th and 19th century, feminism had influence in Germany, France and the USA. It was then given a political spin and more women came forward, and voiced their matters. Le Voix de Femmes, translated as The Voice of Women, was a daily newspaper published by Parisian feminists that shed light on women's rights around the world. They were also inspired by anti-slavery activists. This is an early, yet subtle example of feminism and intersectionality. We'll touch on that later. Focusing in on the United States, In the late 1840s, feminist fervor was on the rise, and conventions led to a redrafting of the Declaration of Independence, adding in the most daring resolution, giving women the right to vote. This was led by Lucretia Mott, who was a preacher, and championed by a former slave named Frederick Douglass, another taste of intersectionality. The resolutions were passed, but Mott didn't speak for a lot of women. See, one major criticism directed at the first wave of feminism is the fact that it was riddled with discrimination, and only the concerns of upper-class white women were taken into account. Sojourner Truth, a former slave who focused more on slavery abolition than feminism, delivered her renowned Ain't I a Woman speech at a women's convention in 1851. A large portion of the speech expressed the estrangement women like her felt towards women at the forefront fighting for women's rights. Here's an excerpt from her speech. That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles, or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery, and when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? That was pretty moving to read, and she made a profound point. Having said that, the feminist fervor was quelled at the wake of the American Civil War but when it was revived, it came back stronger than ever, steadfast with the women's suffrage heading the agenda. After all the strife in the early 20th century, the women's suffrage movement transformed its polite approach to a combative one by boycotting, bombing, picketing and other demonstrations, albeit this was led by a more progressive faction. The right for women to vote was introduced in Britain in 1918 and in 1920, America declared the 19th Amendment guaranteeing all American women the right to vote. This was a great triumph for feminism that would become the global standard over time. The following poem by Charlotte Perkins Gilman celebrates this fact but it is also an important marker for what feminism was about in the first wave. I'm going to read it and analyse it stanza by stanza because it's quite lengthy. Here it is. We as Women by Charlotte Perkins Gilman There is a cry in the air about us. We heard it before, behind, of the way in which we as women are going to lift mankind. The poem begins optimistically, probably fueled by the romance of achieving such a great feat, but the tale of feminism will show that true liberty and female influence was still a far reach. With our white frocks starched and ruffled, and our soft hair brushed and curled, Hats off, for we as women are coming to save the world. Here she is promoting femininity, as she suggests that women can save the world as they are in their white frocks and curled hair. This brings to question the, air quotes, unfeminine tactics that were used in part to get their victory. You know, the bombing and things alike. Fair sisters, listen one moment and perhaps you'll pause for ten. The business of women as women is only with men as men. She is once again taking pride in femininity and makes a distinction between the sexes whilst also showing their need for each other. What we do, we as women, we have done all through our life. The work that is ours as women is the work of mother and wife. Very fitting for the time, once again the idea that women were born and bred to be wed. And despite the emerging defiance of these traditional roles, the speaker is endorsing them. But to elevate public opinion and to lift up erring man is the work of the human being. Let us do it, if we can. Here the speaker is calling for a unified effort from men and women to better the world, reinforcing the fact that virtue isn't a matter of gender. It is the work of the human
3: being. But wait,
0: warm-hearted sisters, not quite so fast so far. Tell me, how are we going to lift a thing any higher than we are. We are going to purify politics and to elevate the press. We enter the foul paths of the world to sweeten, cleanse and bless. These stanzas illustrate the ambition and the excitement that was in the atmosphere. We are going to do this, we are going to do that. However, the speaker tones it down by stating that there will be limits. And these limits seem to be based on their idea of what women are meant to do. Sweeten, cleanse, and bless. To hear the high things we are going to do, and the horrors of man we tell, one would think we as women were angels, and our brothers were fiends of hell. We, that were born of one mother, and reared in the self-same place, in the school and the church together, We of one blood, one race. Here, the speaker urges women not to demonize men. The men who are their brothers at heart, whom they shared their earliest years with. The victory should not cause a rift between them. I thought the last line, we of one blood, one race, meant humanity as a whole, you know, the human race. But interestingly, Gilman believed in racial purity stating that she was an Anglo-Saxon before everything. Now then, all forward together, but remember, everyone, that tis not by feminine innocence that the work of the world is done. The world needs strength and courage and wisdom to help and feed. When we as women bring these to man, we shall lift the world indeed. The speaker calls for unity between men and women once again by highlighting the general strengths of each gender, strength and courage to men, and the wisdom to help and feed to women, and how they come together to make the world a better place. From this, it's safe to assume that the first wave of feminism generally embraced traditional roles, acknowledged the differences between the sexes whilst embracing those differences and how they could come together for the betterment of the world. Now we are taking our inquiry eastwards, to Japan, to relish the works of Akiko Yosano. She was born in 1878 in Sakai, Japan, and is the greatest female poet and tanka poet in Japan's modern history. A tanka poem consists of five lines comprising the following number of syllables. Five syllables in the first line, seven in the second line, five in the third line, seven in the fourth line, and seven syllables in the fifth line. A feminist, a pacifist, and an instigator for social reform in the early 1900s, Yosano's name is synonymous with Japanese romanticism. She lives on as the princess, the queen, and the goddess of poetry in Japan. She was brought up with her parents' traditional beliefs. Nevertheless, her natural curiosity led her to the libraries of her great-grandparents where she cultivated her literary skills. Eroticism and imaginative passion permeate each line of her pieces as she was determined to fill each one of them with emotion. This is a reflection of her life in which she strove to live purposefully and colourfully. Alongside establishing a culture school for girls, she produced extensive work on women's social causes with her husband, Hiroshi Yosano, which she gained from financially. In spite of her financial success, she was still passionate about justice and speaking up for those who were oppressed, even if it meant defying her own people. An example being her mourning for Chinese boy soldiers who were killed by the Japanese in Shanghai. At times, She'd be an outcast for her beliefs and work, but it didn't break her stride. Yosano was also well-traveled, and on her travels around Europe, she was taken aback by the relative freedoms European women had, which inspired her to be a force for change back in Japan. Even after her husband's passing, she remained focused in her activities and craft, consistently producing work all the while raising her 13 children. 11 of whom would make it to adulthood. She died from a stroke, aged 64, in 1942. All in all, she's produced 17,000 tanka poems and over 500 free verse poems. Before we get into the poem, it's important that we talk about English translations. English translations aren't fully able to capture the nuances of the Japanese language, let alone Yosano's layered innuendos. I'm reading a quote from the book Feminist Poets to Elaborate on her writing style. Akiko's poetry is characterized by lyric, rhetorical, dramatic, and narrative strength. Each poem expresses an intense feeling of a particular moment in the poet's life, a feeling that is often too subtle, complex, or ambiguous to be fully comprehended by Westerners unfamiliar with the nuances of Japanese sensibility. The rhetorical thrust of many of Akiko's poems can readily be understood. However, especially in those poems concerned with dramatic conflict between lovers, with the plight of women generally, and with protests against social conventions, the drama of Akiko's stormy life concentrated in the tanka reveals the intricate story of her romance, marriage, and literary career. Thus, a study of her collections as unified works is usually more fruitful than formal analysis of individual poems. It's safe to say that this isn't the last time you'll be hearing of Akiko Yosano, because it's only right that we gather enough poems to explore them as unified works. For now, I have a translated poem titled Labor Pains. It is one of her free verse poems, and I am reading it to you now. I am sick today, sick in my body. Eyes wide open, silent. I lie on the bed of childbirth. Why do I, so used to the nearness of death, to pain and blood and screaming, now? Uncontrollably tremble with dread. A nice young doctor tried to comfort me and talked about the joy of giving birth. Since I know better than he about this matter, what good purpose can his prattle serve? Knowledge is not reality, experience belongs to the past. Let those who lack immediacy be silent, let observers be content to serve. I am all alone, totally, utterly, entirely on my own, gnawing my lips, holding my body rigid, waiting on inexorable fate. There is only one truth. I shall give birth to a child. Truth driving outward from my inwardness. Neither good nor bad. Real. No sham about it. With the first labour pains, suddenly the sun goes pale. The indifferent world goes strangely calm. I am alone. It is alone I am. Very somber, kind of sad, but very sensible. It feels like the reader is engaging in her internal dialogue the day she is giving birth to one of her many children. She mentions that this isn't her first delivery, and there's a sense that she's grudging every moment of it. From describing her anticipation of the pain she will experience, to her annoyance at the doctor who is trying to comfort her, with knowledge she is aware of, but is cynical towards as well. Despite this, she faces the fact that she is giving birth. It is the truth, quote, truth driving outward from my inwardness. This truth is is neither good nor bad. It's just real. No faking. No simulation. It is what it is. And so the labour pains strike and the indifferent world goes strangely calm. I'd compare that to silence being pierced by white noise. And she is alone. This piece is very raw and almost relatable. Not the experience of labour pains, but the emotions conveyed. As the poem progresses. Could this poem spark a conversation on reproductive rights, which is primarily a feminist matter? I think it could. This is an excerpt from the experiences of an early feminist who was arguably still bound to the tradition of having many children. Considering everything, the first wave of feminism ends with women and girls being allowed in an education and then the right to vote. Nonetheless, the popular and seemingly only recognised role was that of mother and wife. Due to the fact that the vote was the only goal and had been achieved, feminism broke up into smaller groups, each one vying for a different cause, from labour legislation to women's health care. Some fighting did come about due to some feminists wanting laws that benefited women rather than promoting equality. And so the question arose. Did the feminist movement want to create full equality? Or did it want to respond to the needs of women? Because equality meant removing some protections that women initially had. From the late 1920s all the way through the Great Depression and the two world wars, Feminist activism was mostly inactive. During the war, women were allowed employment in factories as nurses and some direct involvement in the war. Following the Second World War, the US in particular shifted to creating suburbs where traditional roles were revised. Women were marrying younger and having a lot more children than they did during their fight for the vote. And by the 60s, the percentage of employed women was lower than it was in the 30s. For some time, American or Western suburban life was characterized by conformity and prosperity. Not long after, the proverbial white picket fence that once secured the homestead became a stumbling block in the way of a renewed feminist movement whose sights were set beyond it.
4: at the present time uh, it's a sort of watershed i think um women are apparently liberated in many ways, but in fact and in practice, they're not. They're still discriminated against in many professional fields and in often in very pernicious ways. And I think the time has come when women have got to find self-respect and a full identity of their own, and that's what's that's what's very difficult for them. And the battle that we have to fight is not against men; it's often against women actually to try and get them to for themselves.
5: Would you like to say to thousands of women listeners who <laughs> imagine that they're enjoying life at the kitchen sink,
4: women? unite you have nothing to lose but your
5: kitchen
0: sinks the 60s and 70s were a defining decade for feminism in the west and this was mostly because it was lended a platform through the civil rights movement many of the feminists of the second wave were children of tertiary educated mothers who were displeased and disillusioned by the social structures of the time idyllic suburbia Couldn't repress the growing yearn for equality and justice, which emanated from protests like those against the Vietnam War. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy created the President's Commission on the Status of Women. In 1963, the Commission issued a report stating that it fully supported the nuclear family and preparing women for motherhood, all the while presenting evidence for a national pattern of discrimination against working women. This evidence was to encourage legislative corrections that guaranteed equal work, equal pay and equal job opportunities as well as broader childcare services, thus presenting the Equal Pay Act of 1963 and later the Civil Rights Act. This act barred employers from discriminating on the basis of sex. While these were great legislative strides, they proved insufficient in making actual progress for women's rights. I want to branch out for a moment and talk about the counterculture movement of the 60s, which was characterized by the long-haired, bell-bottomed, acid-dropping, commune-dwelling, nature-loving, music-making, free-loving freaks, the rebels for a cause, the hippies. The description I gave was from the book Imagination where the authors go on to describe the hippie's cause as the cause for remaking society to reject warmongering and artifice, alienation and repression, to reflect instead the jouissance of life, unfettered by restrictive norms of a corrupt and moribund society. Having mentioned that, it's only obvious that this movement sought to emancipate and empower the woman, right? Well. No. In her book, Daughters of Aquarius, Women of the Sixties Counterculture, Gretchen Lemke Santangelo documents the experiences of women who were hippies and their experiences as the counterculture progressed. Interestingly, female hippies weren't given much attention in the evaluation of the movement as a whole, so Lemke Santangelo sought to compensate for the missing details in her book. For one, a woman of the counterculture was more often than not subject to similar domestic obligations as the average 20th century woman, this time with the twist of sexual liberation. A journal wherein Lemcus and Tangelo is mentioned reads, At the same time, counterculturalists in the 1960s tended to accept, even romanticize, traditional gender dichotomies that cast women as essentially different from men, more intuitive, nurturing, cooperative, non-aggressive, present-oriented and ruled by their emotions and bodies. As such, women were naturally suited to be wives, mothers, caregivers and helpmates. Their livelihoods were in part a reenactment of their foremothers' duties, grinding wheat to bake bread, weaving and gardening. Actions that were once varied, challenging and economically viable. While they are said to have been empowered by these roles, it really makes you wonder if it was just all in vain. Because the female hippie could leave the Arcadian hippie lifestyle as she came into it with a lift of a thumb and hitchhike back to the convenience and comfort of emerging America. I bring this up also because the counterculture movement was male-dominated and proved to be directionless and superficial in light of actually tackling social issues such as women's rights. Overall, I was intrigued by this because it was easy for me to lump the counterculture movement and feminism together. But now that the fog has settled, the credit for the second wave's success goes to the organized efforts of feminist activists. Let's have a quick skim through these efforts. The National Organization for Women promoted the use of the neutral title Miss, MS, so as not to refer to a woman's marital status. Women's health and crisis centres were established. Roe v. Wade and the right to bodily autonomy. Children's literature was revised to do away with gender stereotypes. Discrimination against women in places of work was heavily penalised and women's studies departments were established in universities. This encouraged a greater discourse regarding the nature of women's oppression, gender, and the nuclear family. From then onwards, feminist ideology was far from congruent. So many factions differing and disagreeing on the most foundational concepts. Eventually, three main branches remained. Liberal or mainstream feminism, radical feminism, And cultural or difference feminism. Succinctly, liberal feminism focuses on making practical changes at an institutional or governmental level and giving women equal access to these power structures. Radical feminism strives to redefine society and social institutions as it senses an inherent male bias. Cultural or difference feminism advocates for celebrating what makes women. Different from men, and goes against the idea that women can enter spaces that are traditionally male. In the poems to come, we'll see how these sub ideologies have influenced their respective writers, starting off with Denise Levitov. She was born in London in 1923 as a second daughter to her Welsh mother and Russian father. It is this multicultural environment that would heavily influence her work. As for her early years, Levitov was homeschooled by her mother, who would read classical books to her and oversaw the production of her earliest poems. Though she considered a career in dance, she worked as a nurse during the Second World War. In the 1960s, she married an American writer with whom she had a son. For the next 40 years of her life, she published more than a dozen volumes of poetry, 600 to be exact, and lectured at esteemed universities garnering many awards to her name. Just as the women's movement took shape in the 60s, there was an onslaught of prominent female poets taking their lives, such as Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. Levitov lamented their loss, not only as pioneers of the craft, but because their deaths perpetuated the idea that poets were abnormally sensitive and were due to succumb to their madness. In her perspective, the alcoholism and mental issues that Sexton and Plath struggled with weren't signs of some gory genius or talent akin to the broken artist trope. In her own words, creativity belonged to responsible, mature adults who took citizenship seriously. That opinion was slightly altered when she wrote and spoke against American involvement in war, especially the Vietnam War. Her passionate disapproval for the Vietnam War is expressed in the poem What Were They Like?, which is featured in many anthologies. After living in Mexico for some time, she died in Seattle in 1997. The prominent themes in her work were questions that she continuously engaged with, like the meaning of life, the issues of justice that had arisen in the 20th century, and her more personal concerns, like friendships, families, and other relationships. Her writing styles take on the Welsh influence of song and speech, and the profound religious thought of her priest-father's Jewish-Christian search for truth. Essentially, morality and mystery are intrinsic to her poetry. The poem I will be reading is titled The Aches of Marriage. It reads, The ache of marriage. Thigh and tongue, beloved, are heavy with it. It throbs in the teeth. We look for communion and are turned away, beloved, each and each. It is Leviathan and we in its belly, looking for joy, some joy, not to be known outside it. Two by two in the ark of the ache of it. The ache of marriage compares marriage to Jonah's life in the belly of a whale. The poet and her spouse are looking for joy, as seen in the lines, some joy not to be known outside it. Marriage is not discarded as an ideal, but its confinement brings problems to women who feel an urge to work in a wider field. This was one of the instigators of the second wave, the institution of marriage and the hold it seemed to have on women's lives, preventing them from effectively participating in society. Our next poet is Mitsuye Yamada. She is a Japanese-American poet, and her most celebrated work is the collection of poetry based on her experiences during the internment of Japanese-Americans in the 1940s. She was born the only girl out of three children, and spent some of her early years between Japan and the United States. In her early teens, she was reunited with her family in America. Soon after, they were entered into internment camps, where she, her mother, and brothers were held for 18 months separate from their father. Following their release, she went on to get a bachelor's degree and later master's in English literature, and married in 1955. She Lived most of her life in South California, where she raised her fourth children and taught in community colleges until her retirement. She has committed her life to humanitarian efforts in response to the incarceration in her youth. Now, on to her magnum opus. This collection of poetry is called Camp Notes. The notes were written while she was held in the internment camp, but were only published 30 years later. The themes of her poems centre around her feelings as an immigrant and as a young woman in a country that became foreign to her as a result of its sudden hostility. The poems that really stand out for me in the book are the ones where her mother is narrating. Her accent is evident in the structure of her sentences and the simplicity of her expressions. I believe the emotions and message of the poem are enhanced because you can sense that she wants to say more. But doesn't really have the range of English words to do so. As I mentioned, the speaker of the poem has an accent which adds to the richness and character of the piece. In light of this, I will not be reciting the poem. Someone else will. Here is a recital of Marriage Was a Foreign Country by Arisa Nagai.
2: Marriage Was a Foreign Country by Mitsuya Yamada. I come to be here. Because they say I must follow my husband. So I come. My grandmother cried You are not crippled, why to America? When we land aboard full of new brides lean over railing with wrinkled glossy picture. They hold inside hand like this. So excited down there at dock full of men, they do same thing. Hold pictures look up and down like this. They find faces too much pictures. Your father, I see him on the dock. He come to Japan to marry and leave me. I was not a picture bride. I was only afraid.
0: There is something really special about the simplicity of expression in this poem. The speaker's limitation leaves her disposed to being honest. There is no space to be ambiguous, and so her emotions are clear. You can pick up when she is sad, happy, expressing shock and excitement throughout the poem. This piece narrates one of Yamada's mother's experiences as an immigrant and wife. She talks about how she came to marry her husband as a picture bride. Picture bride was a practice of the early 20th century, done by Japanese and Korean immigrant workers in the west coast of the USA, particularly Hawaii. Brides from their native countries would be selected by matchmakers, who would then match up brides and grooms with photographs and suggestions from their families. The women became picture brides for a variety of reasons. Some came from poor families and saw moving to the U.S. as a way to support them, while others became picture brides merely because it was a trend. Conversely, men took part in the picture bride process because they were stuck in Hawaii due to an act by the U.S. and the Empire of Japan that restricted their mobility, so their only choice was to settle down. These young men came to America as temporary plantation workers and the plantation owners espoused picture brides because they saw marriage as a moral booster that would reduce the amount of time the men spent gambling or smoking opium. The process of having a picture bride was far from glamorous. Upon arrival on US docks, the picture brides would go through various inspections, and because their marriage was not legal, they would meet their husbands for the first time and have mass marriage ceremonies right on the docks. Interestingly, some women were surprised when they saw who their husbands turned out to be. Some men would send misleading photographs of themselves, presenting as younger, wealthy, and posed with luxury items, or even a completely different person. The speaker narrates everything leading up to finally meeting her picture husband. Yet it seems that she was already married to him, before he left for America, as she says she is to follow her husband, and later says that he came to Japan to marry her, but left her. Her grandmother then cries that she is not crippled, and questions her move to America. The word crippled here could signify a deficiency, meaning her grandmother is saying that she has no deficiency, either in living standards or education. So why is she going to America? By this analysis, she could have been part of the group of ladies who became picture brides because it was fashionable, but we have some information indicating that she was already married, which sheds more light on how she describes the events following the bride's arrival on the dock. She describes the event in the first person, but she narrates her experiences in the third person. To elaborate, she says, when we land the boat full of new brides, with wrinkled, glossy picture, they hold inside hand, they do same thing, they find faces, they do this, they do that. Unlike the other picture brides, she was not a new bride. She watched on as they leaned over the railing, in excitement, anticipating their new lives, and of course, meeting their husbands for the first time, for whom they sailed weeks to meet. Amid the commotion of husbands and wives identifying each other, the speaker instantly spots her husband on the dock and takes to remembering that he came to Japan to marry her, then left. It seems like this was the only way to be with him again, and she acknowledges that she wasn't actually a picture bride, despite going through the process of becoming one. Her marital status wasn't a concern. It was now this decision she made that was. Being in a foreign country, most likely to work on the plantations, as that was the life of many picture brides. Now, I just want to refresh the fact that Yamada wrote this poem, and she made her mother the speaker. She does a fine job of expressing her mother's dutiful nature as a wife, and that she, despite her fears and loss of comfort, makes a way to be with her husband. Her reluctance is subtle, but it was expected of her either way to follow her husband, and her grandmother is the only one who challenged it. Yamada not only includes her experiences as a young woman in camp notes, but she includes those of her mother and grandmother to present an assemblage of what it meant to be a woman in each of their generations. Her grandmother and mother's duties were to their husbands and children. For Yamada, her status as a Japanese immigrant marked her experiences as she had to navigate through society, acknowledging that there were sentiments against people like her. She is quoted as saying, Asian American women in particular must remember that one of the most insidious ways of keeping women and minorities powerless is to let them only talk about harmless and inconsequential subjects. Or let them speak freely and not listen to them with serious intent. Very important and relevant words. We are now going down the road of sapphism to explore lesbian feminist poetry. <laughs> It is between the years 630 and 570 BCE, and the island of Lesbos is inhabited by one Sappho. Though her sexuality is debated, she is regarded as a symbol for love between women. A sentence from an essay by Alistair Blanchard for theconversation.com reads, Every time that the legal rights of gays and lesbians have been discussed, somebody will evoke the Greeks. This ancient civilization is often looked back on, wistfully, for its attitudes towards same-sex love. But of course, their views were much more complex and erroneous in some aspects. Male same-sex relationships attracted more care and interest in the Greek world than those of women. This attentiveness is exemplified in the ritual of courtship between older and adolescent men, as well as the myths created detailing gay relationships, such as the one between Hyacinthus, Apollo and Zephyrus. Very little is known about the lives of same-sex attracted women in ancient Greece, and in Sappho's case, work exploring love between women was actively suppressed, either by destroying them or heterosexualizing them. Sappho wrote a total 10,000 lines of poetry, but only 650 have survived. Her poems are often melancholic due to unrequited love or true love being impeded through forced marriage. Regarding style, her work is characterized by simple thoughts, clear language and a decorative use of hyperbole. Her pieces explore individual identity and emotions such as desire, jealousy and love in a way that mirrors the supernatural and grandiose narratives of epic poetry. Let us have a look at one of her pieces titled ode to aphrodite it reads aphrodite subtle of soul and deathless daughter of god weaver of wiles i pray thee neither with care dread mistress nor with anguish slay thou my spirit but in pity hasten come now if ever From afar of old, when my voice implored thee, Thou hast deigned to listen, Leaving the golden house of thy father. With thy chariot yoked, With doves that drew thee, Fair and fleet around the dark earth from heaven, Dipping vibrant wings down the azure distance, Through the mid-ether. Very swift they came in thou gracious vision, Leaned with face that smiled in immortal beauty, Leaned to me and asked, What misfortune threatened? Why I had called thee? What my frenzied heart craved in utter yearning, Whom its wild desire would persuade to passion? What disdainful charms madly worshipped slight thee? Who wrongs thee, Sappho? She that fain would fly, She shall quickly follow, She that now rejects, yet with gifts, shall woo thee. She that heeds thee not, soon shall love to madness. Love thee, the Loth-One. Come to me now, thus goddess, and release me from distress and pain, and all my distracted heart would seek. Do thou once again fulfilling. Still be my ally. This poem was written in Aeolic Greek which is a lesbian dialect. Lesbian is in the demonym of a person, from Lesbos. If you'd like some insight on the intricacies of the dialect, a link is provided. Structure-wise, the poem comprises suffix stanzas, which are three identically long lines, followed by a shorter fourth line. The ode is a prayer to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, from a speaker who longs for the affections of an unnamed woman. How do we know the speaker is Sappho? Well, she names herself in the line, Who wrongs thee, Sappho? A question asked to her by Aphrodite. We can confirm that the unnamed person is a woman because the line, Love thee, the Loth One, is written in Aeolic Greek as Koik Ethelisa. Ethelisa is the feminine word for volunteer. In context of the stanza, Sappho asks the goddess, to ease the pains of her unrequited love for this woman. After being appealed to, Aphrodite appears to Sappho to tell her that the woman who has rejected her advances will in time pursue her or volunteer herself to her, as a direct translation. Quote, She that heeds thee not soon shall love to madness. Love thee, the Loth One. The poem concludes with another call for the goddess to assist the speaker in all her amorous struggles. The poem, along with the lyrics of Sappho 31, are pieces that prove that Sappho loved other women. Some have analyzed that the piece was performative and intended for Sappho's audience of female friends, or possibly a parody of a Homeric epic. Regardless of which way the interpretation sways, I think this passage from a Wikipedia entry can bring us to a different conversation. Quote, Today it is generally accepted that Sappho's poetry portrays homoerotic feelings. As Sandra Bohringer puts it, her work clearly celebrates eros between women. Towards the end of the 20th century though, some scholars began to reject the question of whether or not Sappho was a lesbian. Glenn Most wrote that Sappho herself would have had no idea what people meant when they would call her nowadays a homosexual. André Laudenois stated that it is nonsensical to ask whether Sappho was a lesbian. And Paige Dubois calls the question a particularly obfuscating debate. Interesting that. Being attracted to the same sex did not bear our modern meaning or possibly any meaning at all during her time. The heterosexualization of her work only happened in the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE, long after her death, and it seems that it was done because she was a woman and her being a lesbian wasn't as valid as the homosexual relationships between men. Of course, over time, being a lesbian would gain all sorts of meaning, a good portion of which was totally groundless and mostly reactionary. The third wave of feminism gives us a closer look at the works of modern lesbian feminists and how they explored and even recharted the ideological constructs of gender and sexuality. Along with the conversation of lesbianism was the race factor that seemed to be a thorn in the flesh of the feminist movement. What was feminism to the woman of colour? More so the lesbian or queer woman of colour.
3: Well, the legendary poet, essayist and feminist Adrienne Rich died on Tuesday at the age of 82. Rich was one of the most celebrated poets of the last half century and a lifelong advocate for women, gay and lesbian rights, peace and racial justice. Rich drew widespread acclaim for her many volumes of poetry and prose, which brought the oppression of women and lesbians into the public spotlight. She was a key figure in the women's movement and an uncompromising critic of the powerful. Rich won numerous awards and honors, including the National Book Award for the 1973 collection. Diving into the wreck, refusing to accept the award alone, she appeared on stage with poets Audre Lorde and Alice Walker, and, and the three accepted the award on behalf of all women.
2: We knew we were outsiders. We knew we were outside the pale. We lived in the village. We were outsiders. We were dykes, right? A lot of us were artists. We hated typing. <laughs> right? We didn't want straight jobs. Whatever we did, we were at the fringe. Now this, of course, was the 50s. It was like the um, the gay girls' version of the beatniks. You have to remember that the lesbian gay girls, because that's what we would call the gay girls' population, was a reflection of what else was going on, right, around us. And that was the era of let's pretend this is the best of all possible worlds, this is exactly what we choose, right, and this is it. So, like nobody talked about racism. Right. So if something happened to me in a bar, I couldn't count on anybody standing up and covering my back. A white lesbian would not stand up to cover my back. They may say, personally, oh, isn't that too bad it happened to you, but not Hey, this shouldn't happen, period. We know
0: that the second wave brought much success at institutional levels, and women had more rights and power going into the 90s. This liberty allowed the conversation to broaden and foster more individuality and non-conformity. Adding to that, this was a time where the internet became more commonplace, so many movements broke out and could be introduced to people all over the world. The term third wave feminism was coined by Rebecca Walker in an article titled Becoming the Third Wave for Ms. Magazine, wherein she proclaims, I am the third wave. She was 23 at the time and is a bisexual woman of colour who helped raise consciousness over race in the feminist movement. This introduced the aforementioned term intersectionality which is a framework for understanding the complex ways that many aspects of people's identities overlap, namely their race, gender, sexual orientation, class, and more. Intersectionality realises that some women face more injustice or oppression because of how their other identities intersect with their womanhood. The eminence of intersectionality within feminism caused the term woman poet To be resisted, thus creating a distinction between women poets and feminist poets. Woman poet implied confining to a collective identity, which certainly wasn't the case in the third wave where women actively expressed their individuality in how they spoke and dressed. Take Riot Girl, for example. It is an underground feminist punk movement that is still a strong subculture in our present day. Feminist poets found themselves increasingly. Opposed to the poetry establishment, and the reason why is expressed in the following passage from the book The Feminist Poetry Movement by Kim Whitehead. Quote In most ways, these two worlds, the mainstream and the feminist, still do not intersect but remain parallel and contradictory. The case of the Pratt Award ceremony clearly illustrates that feminist poets are indeed engaged in an ongoing struggle. With the guardians of the contemporary poetry establishment. They are censored or rejected because they self consciously call on distinctly feminist poetics, and most especially if they write explicitly about their personal experiences of not only gender, but other differences. In Pratt's case, lesbianism, but also race, ethnicity, and class. End quote. So, feminist poets, unlike woman poets, strived to bring light to oppression beyond gender. Now let's talk about Minnie Bruce Pratt, the woman mentioned in the quote. She was born September 12, 1946 in Alabama to a social worker, Mrs. Pratt, and a clerk, Mr. Pratt. She attended a segregated high school and graduated from the University of Alabama with her bachelor's in 1968. During her time at university, she married fellow poet Marvin E. Weaver II, with whom she had two sons. Pratt had stopped writing after her marriage, but she returned to poetry in 1975 after she came out as a lesbian. In her own words, quote, I returned to poetry not because I had become a lesbian, but because I had returned to my body after years of alienation. After finding out about her sexual orientation, Her ex-husband threatened her with complete loss of rights to her sons if she did not follow his wishes to have primary custody. He was enabled by the state's Crime Against Nature statute, which criminalized homosexual activity. This is an experience that she explores in depth in her poetry. Her first volume of poetry titled Crime Against Nature, named after the statute, explores her struggle to maintain her relationship with her sons, as her time with them was often abrupt and the conditions under which she could develop their relationship were often stringent. Her ex-husband wouldn't even allow the children to visit her new home, and in a poem titled The Place Lost and Gone, The Place Found, she details that on weekend visits she and her sons would travel back and forth over the borders of creeks and rivers between the remnants of their former stable life and an uncertain future. While lecturing at Fayetteville State University, she joined a feminist writing collective where she produced a feminary journal that earned her a PhD in English literature. Throughout the 80s, she taught at various universities and from 2003 till 2015, she was a professor of women's and gender studies and writing and rhetoric at Syracuse University in New York, where she developed the university's first LGBT study program. She met her spouse, transgender lesbian activist and writer, Leslie Feinberg, in 1992. The couple married in 2011. Sadly, Feinberg died in 2014. I couldn't get my hands on any of her books, so I'm not sure where the following poem is from. Nevertheless, I am reading Aura by Minnie Bruce Pratt. My grandmother is dying. She writhes and yells as they bathe her. She said that she never felt like anyone until she married. She was such a lady. She would be embarrassed to see herself now. I saw her wedding yesterday from behind a fence of cardboard placards. I wore blue jeans, the crowd wore fur, and she was swathed in veils of ivory illusion. They aimed a machine gun at us, from the steeple, and cheered. As she edged past into the house, on the arm of the President, we were chanting for justice, for U.S. prisoners, when the words rolled into her name. Aura, heart of gold, you let down your silver hair, for us to comb and grasp. You wound it into braids, for your crown. Your arthritic hands crackled as you combed the wool and pierced our comforts. Your head is shorn now, but I never thought you would die. The seam that you have sewn stretches even and fine. I enjoyed reading that, but I must be honest, I only know what's going on for a quarter of the poem. So here are my crumbs. I found a transcript of an interview Pratt did, and in it she talks about her family and career in general. Her maternal grandmother's name was Aura, the title of the poem, and she lived between the late 19th century and early 20th century. I mention this because when looking for a definition of the word Aura, it was a popular name around that time. However, another definition of the word is an opening or entrance to a passage either a mouth or the end of the cervix. Now looking at the first stanza, lines 5 to 6 read, She said that she never felt like anyone until she married. These lines insinuate the idea that marriage could give a woman value, but that belief is expected of her grandmother as she was from a time when that was a popular opinion. In analysing the line following after, which reads, She was such a lady. I referred to the interview where Pratt said the following about her grandmother and mother. Quote. Well, what was kind of interesting about my mother's side of the family was that all of the stuff about being a lady was really from the outside. The women in my family were not ladies in that way. And I learned from those women to work really, really hard. My grandmother knew how to work as someone who had grown up on a farm, so she knew how to make things. Everything. Soap, card wool for comfort. I mean, you name it. She knew how to make it. She was from that generation where you made everything. End quote. So, I think it's reasonable to conclude that when Pratt refers to her grandmother's demeanor as a lady, she doesn't mean it in the classical sense that she was dainty and refined. Following that, she describes her writhing and yelling as she's being bathed, which could mean that she was used to being independent and doing things for herself. So being bathed by others and furthermore subduing herself to marriage would be an embarrassment to her character. In the second stanza, we have a change in scenery. The wedding becomes a symbol for something else. The speaker, who we've presumed is Minnie Bruce, describes the wedding from behind a fence of cardboard placards which indicates that this wedding is actually a protest. Her grandmother is covered up completely and has the president on her arm as she makes her way into the church and people with machine guns are ready to fire from the church steeple. That is a lot and I don't know what to make of it. Despite that, Pratt is still heavily involved in social causes to this day. There are various images of her at protests, rallying for change. So she wrote this from experience. I speculate that her grandmother in this poem is a symbol for the feminist movement. And this poem maybe narrates the achievements of the movement at that time, ending with the lines, The seam you have sown stretches even and fine, which could refer to the legacy of the second wave carrying over into the third wave. Our next poet, Is Christos. Christos is a Menominee writer and two spirit activist. Their work delineates the civil rights of Indigenous Americans and how colonialism, genocide, gender, and class affect women and Indigenous people's lives. Their work is primarily intended to raise awareness of Native American heritage and culture, which leads us to explore their two spirit identity. Two-spirit is an umbrella term that includes a multitude of cultural beliefs and traditions. The term has been present in Native American communities long before the conception of Western LGBTQ terminology. Two-spirit is a spiritual journey that comprises gender and sexual identity. Two-spirit people have both a male and female spirit within them and are blessed by their creator to see life through the eyes of both genders. In many tribes, they are the balance keepers and play an integral role in the sacred hoop, which is a symbol signifying the earth's boundary and all the knowledge of the universe. Along with their Native American audience, Christos directed their pieces to people of color and lesbians, and the poem I will be reading details the struggle of being a lesbian and by extension, the struggle of not conforming to traditional or Western gender and sexual norms. The piece is titled, Crooning. It reads, A soft old song for every lesbian who wants to go home again, and can't, with her woman lover in her arms, holding hands in the streets, simple in our love, that they twist, so no lies. Not cousins, not best friends, not roommates. No second bedrooms for show. No pretend boyfriends. No custody cases. No hidden mouths. No grim smiles at queer jokes on the job you'd lose if they knew. Go home with joy and strength. Go home, be received instead of tolerated. No anguished mothers. Afraid of father's response or neighbor's gossip or grandma's heart condition, go home to a clean, welcome mat, a double bed, no questions, accusations, or expectations. I croon an old soft song for us. Rocking down to a kind place we won't see in our lives, fighting for it even when we're drunk in bars, because we can't go home. Crooning for us, my heart split. What a great piece. Christos so passionately relays the desires of those in lesbian relationships who cannot openly express their sexuality. Crooning, this piece is softly sung for all the lesbians who can't love as they'd like to, who can't go about having a relationship without the anguish of their mothers or the fear of their father's reactions. The lesbians who have to strive their way through flagrant opposition, exemplified in legislation, and even the most subtle slight, like queer jokes and gossip. I think this song rings true and really shows that While the feminist movement was making all its progress, the empowerment of minorities would be worlds apart. I think the best person to describe this distance is Audre Lorde, who was our next poet. At the start of the chapter, I played a new segment, and then another clip followed. That was Audre Lorde herself, describing what it was like to be a black lesbian feminist. As she said, a lot of them were artists. And she was a prolific one at that. Audre Lorde was an American writer, feminist, womanist, librarian, and civil rights activist. She dedicated her life and work to addressing racial injustice, sexism, and homophobia. As a poet, she is widely acclaimed for her technical mastery and emotional expression. I couldn't find her recital for the poem we will discuss, but there are plenty of interviews and recitals out there for you to relish her cadence and vocal nuances. She was born in New York to Caribbean immigrant parents. Her father, Byron Lord, was Barbadian and bore a darker complexion than his wife, Linda Belmar Lord, who was Grenadian but passed for Spanish. Her mixed ancestry and ability to racially pass was a source of pride for the Belmar family, who with a semblance of reluctance, eventually allowed for her marriage to Mr Lord, because his charisma and persistence overshadowed his complexion. Growing up, Lord had a difficult relationship with her parents. She barely spent time with either one of them, as they would be busy maintaining their real estate business amid the waning economy of the Great Depression. When she did interact with them, they were often cold and distant her mother in particular is said to have been suspicious of people with skin darker than hers trust me i'm trying to make sense of that myself which audrey had this in combination with her wariness of the outside world was the cause for audrey's strict upbringing poetry became a powerful means of expression for lord she recounts that she would think in poetry and memorised various poems that she would recite when she communicated with others. She would often refer to herself as crazy and queer, to give reason as to why she had been outcasted so much in her youth. What seemed to others as a phase of hers turned out to be a transfiguration into her true form. A continuum of women and a concert of women is what she'd say of herself as her influence blossomed. She was steadfast on confronting issues of racism in feminist thought, which often led to angry confrontation from white feminists, who she considered to augment the oppression of black women. This fervent disagreement with notable white feminists furthered Lord's persona as an outsider. There is much to be said about her travels, essays, speeches and interviews, but for now I shall say that Lord's contributions are as relevant now as they were in their inception. Despite her succumbing to cancer at age 58, her words have proved themselves timeless. I am reading you, Who Said It Was Simple? by Audre Lorde. There are so many roots to the tree of anger that sometimes the branches shatter before they bear. Sitting in Neddix, the women rally before they march. Discussing the problematic girls they hire to make them free. An almost white counterman passes, A waiting brother to serve them first, And the ladies neither notice nor reject The slighter pleasures of their slavery. But I, who am bound by my mirror, As well as my bed, See causes in colour as well as sex. And sit here wondering which me will survive all these liberations. There are indeed so many roots to the tree of anger, namely racism and homophobia. Lord took note of a hierarchy in the feminist movement. On one hand, you had white feminists who often identified with their white brothers more than the problematic girls that is, women like her. And she makes it a point to say that what characterises these problematic girls isn't the fact that they are outspoken, but because they happen to be the wrong race or have the wrong sexuality. Hence, Lord says that she is bound by her mirror and bed, that is, her skin colour as well as her sexual orientation. These are two innate and immutable parts of herself that she wonders which will survive the liberation of other less oppressed groups, meaning that the liberation of her identities isn't even on the table. So women like her remain as the girls, quote, hired to make them free, them being the white feminists. Ultimately, Lord uses this poem to emphasize that all social justice movements must be rooted in a foundation of intersectionality in order to be genuine and effective. Women of colour in the first world wanted a differentiated feminism. However, this would come at the expense of women in developing nations who began to have a seat at the table. Feminist scholars called for a feminist politics of location, which theorised that women were subject to specific Assemblies of oppression, and therefore all women emerged with particular identities rather than a generic one. While they encouraged a global community of women, Lord, in particular, felt the cultural homogenization of third world women could only lead to a disguised form of oppression with its own forms of othering towards women in developing nations. This would repeat the cycle of an oppressed group using one of its own as a means to an end. Let's focus in on the globalization of feminism and have a look at how feminist dogma made its way around the world. European and American feminists had begun to interact with the emergent feminist movements of Asia, Africa and Latin America. As this happened, the women in developed countries were often horrified to discover that women in some countries or required to wear veils in public, or to endure forced marriage, female infanticide, widow burning, or female genital cutting, FGC. Many Western feminists quickly assumed themselves to be saviors of third world women, without realizing that their perceptions of, and solutions to, social problems were often at odds with the real lives and concerns of women in these regions. In many parts of Africa, the status of women had only begun to erode significantly with the arrival of European colonialism. In those regions at that time, the notion that the patriarchy was the chief problem was absurd because European imperialism was a greater culprit. The conflicts between women in developed and developing nations played out most vividly at international conferences throughout the 80s and 90s. At a UN conference in 1980, Women from less developed nations complained that the Veil and FGC had been chosen as conference priorities without consulting the women most concerned. It seemed that their counterparts in the West were just not listening to them. In 1994, women from the Third World protested outside a conference on population and development because they believed the agenda had been hijacked by Europeans and Americans. The protesters had expected to talk about ways that underdevelopment was holding women back. Instead, conference organisers chose to focus on contraception and abortion. Aziza al Hebri is a law professor and scholar of Muslim women's rights. She is quoted as saying, Third world women noted that they could not very well worry about other matters when their children were dying from thirst, hunger or war. The conference instead centred around reducing the number of third-world babies in order to preserve the Earth's resources, despite the fact that the First World consumes much of these resources. So, it's safe to say that feminism got a little more complicated following its global crusade. Cue the fourth wave.
3: The late Kenyan Nobel Peace Laureate Wangari Mathai put it simply and well when she said, The higher you go, the fewer women they are.
4: I think the most dangerous conception, especially for my generation, is that the feminist movement has been waged and we won and we are totally and completely equal. So you have young women who are being told you can do everything, you're completely equal, go for your dreams, and then when they get out into the real world and they face sexism and discrimination, Uh, blatantly, but oftentimes not blatantly, they think that something is wrong with them instead of something still being wrong with the world.
3: I don't remember what this particular argument was about, but I remember that as I argued and argued, Oklahoma looked at me and said, you know, you're a feminist. It was not a compliment. I could tell from his tone, the same tone that you would use to say something like, you're a supporter of terrorism. He told me that people were saying that my novel was feminist, and his advice to me, and he was shaking his head sadly as he spoke, was that I should never call myself a feminist because feminists are women who are unhappy because they cannot find husbands. (laughs) So I decided to call myself a happy feminist.
4: For me, personally, feminism is hearing your pain and your struggle in another woman's voice and suddenly realizing there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with her, but there's something wrong with the world that's trying to make you think that there is, and together, you're better equipped to fight it.
3: A Nigerian acquaintance once asked me if I was worried that men would be intimidated by me. I was not worried at all. In fact, it had not occurred to me to be worried because a man who would be intimidated by me is exactly the kind of man I would have no interest in. (laughs)
0: Fourth-wave feminism continues to reckon with intersectionality. There is still criticism of, quote, white feminism. However, transgender rights have become a big part of the conversation. As we've just discussed, feminism hasn't always been the most welcoming movement for transgender women and those who reject the gender binary. Having said that, many fourth-wave feminists are working to combat this exclusion. And we have an example of such efforts in the matriarch of instapoetry herself, Rupi Kaur. On page 162 in her latest book, Homebody, Body, she writes, I am not interested in a feminism that excludes trans women. That ought to tell the turfs." The fourth wave is seemingly more radical than its predecessors. It has emerged from the chambers of institutions and rhetoric of academics to the realm of public discourse. Issues that were central to the earliest phases of the women's movement are now receiving national and international attention through mainstream and social media. The issues include sexual abuse and assault, violence against women, the defence of reproductive rights, unequal pay, slut-shaming, the pressure on women to conform to unrealistic beauty standards. I also throw in the emergence of environmental feminists and the realization that female representation in politics and business are still very slight. This revisionist view of feminism has been perceived as partisan, and so it has got to the point where there is a stigma of sorts in identifying as a feminist. This isn't to say that there has never been a stigma in identifying as one, but there are more people strongly identifying with its tenets, which is making a whole lot of cultural change. Shaking the foundations of society, if you will. In reaction, this often causes feminism to be the scapegoat of many current issues, such as declining marriage rates, birth rates, increased mental illness, and the growing rift between the sexes. I'd argue that these issues are more prevalent in the developed world. However, due to globalization, it's easier for people in developing nations to take sides over feminism either seeing it as an usherer of social instability or a force necessary to be on par with the developed world. When I think of fourth-wave poetry, insta poetry instantly comes to mind. It can be activistic, it's meant to uplift and can validate anyone because there are pieces out there for all sorts of readers and fourth-wave feminism is definitely all about inclusion. And of course... How can we talk about insta-poetry without mentioning Rupi Kaur? I know this is the second time I'm mentioning her, but feminism is a prevalent theme in her work and one of her most popular feminist pieces is from her debut book, Milk and Honey. It doesn't have a title, so I'll just read it. I want to apologize to all the women I have called pretty before I've called them intelligent or brave. I am sorry I made it sound as though something as simple as what you're born with is the most you have to be proud of when your spirit has crushed mountains. From now on, I will say things like, you are resilient or you are extraordinary. Not because I don't think you're pretty, but because you are so much more than that. This piece is a good reminder to women, and really anyone, in an age of social media, that their worth is beyond their physical attributes. Because we are able to put ourselves on display a lot more, our appearances can become an unhealthy source of pride or insecurity over the things that really matter, which are personality and character. I get a similar message from a piece by Nikita Gill, another poet on Instagram. This one's titled, Don't Be Beautiful. I'm sure you've come across this poem at some point. It reads, They keep saying that beautiful is something a girl needs to be. But honestly, forget that. Don't be beautiful. Be angry. Be intelligent. Be witty. Be klutzy. Be interesting. Be funny. Be adventurous. Be crazy. Be talented. There are an eternity of other things to be other than beautiful. And what is beautiful anyway but a set of letters strung together to make a word? Be your own definition of amazing, always. That is so much more important than anything beautiful, ever. So here we have moved from being more than your looks to practically leaving beauty on the wayside to explore attributes other than being beautiful. Being beautiful, according to the speaker, is a social construct to be done away with. As she says, and what is beautiful anyway, but a set of letters strung together to make a word. And while I understand and appreciate where the speaker is coming from, I feel as though the message is conflicting in some ways, because it seems as though wanting to be beautiful cannot coexist with being klutzy, talented, amazing or angry, which are different Attributes among themselves. Klutziness is a more individual thing than being talented, amazing, or angry. The latter three are general terms and aren't really unique, and being amazing or angry isn't really like a unique thing. But I understand that women and girls are discouraged from showing or possessing these traits in one way or another, and this poem seeks to normalize these traits and champion individuality. Now we're changing the tone. I think the poems we've just discussed fall short in their ability to communicate a lasting message. I'm not saying that the poetry from the fourth wave is all insta-poetry, but rather that they seemed to emerge at the same time. And so this style of simple and instructed pieces has become a popular mode to sound off the present feminist rhetoric. While there is some good in that these ideas, can be readily accessed and engaged with, there is greater room for misinformation, the formation of echo chambers, and even losing sight of what the feminist cause is about. Our next poem is by Tamil poet Sharanya Manivanan. She gives a very profound view of womanhood outside Western discourse. The piece I will be reading is titled The Mothers. It reads, A mother, wearing glass beads, looking for another handkerchief, the melted candy and the one she is carrying, as sticky as the nose being wiped on her arm, under church fans, too slow for this April heat. A mother, whose only existing photograph of him was borrowed permanently by someone who told her they could be trusted with her story. Praying to the saint who restores what has been lost on her knees again, again, as many times as it will take. A mother whose own countenance howls in frames the world scrolls past, captured by someone who did not care to learn her name or the names of her dead. A mother who is Amma. Her other name, Forgotten. The word, a scream in the room, at the morgue, where bodies, beloved are identified by wedding rings and blood-splashed shoes on a projection screen. A mother who wishes they could have gone for a swim first, but they are so hungry she has to stand between them in the buffet line so they don't break into a fight. A mother with a baby keeping time inside her body. A mother with a bomb. A mother in the kitchen measuring the sugar generously, preparing the Easter's feast, waiting for the little ones who must just now be saying grace in a circle at Sunday school. Waiting for the little ones to come home. On April 21, 2019, Sri Lanka was rocked by a series of deadly blasts which would later be known as the Easter Sunday bombings. As many as eight blasts occurred in and around the capital, Colombo, as large groups gathered at churches for Easter, St. Anthony's Shrine, St. Sebastian's Church and Zion Church, as well as three luxury hotels in the commercial capital were targeted in a series of coordinated Islamic terrorist suicide bombings. A total of 359 people lost their lives in the attack, and several were left injured. Turning back time to the early 1980s, Sri Lanka was at the start of its civil war between the majority Sinhalese and minority Sri Lankan Tamils. It was also during this time that Manivanan's family, who were among the Tamil diaspora, left Sri Lanka. The civil war ended in 2009. However, Manivanan would only return in 2019 to face the tragedy of the Easter bombings. The Mothers is a poem based on the Mothers of the Disappeared and the Easter Sunday bombings. Mothers of the Disappeared is a movement in Sri Lanka that followed after the years of civil war. It was formed by women who wanted to know what happened to their abducted children. The figures range from 30,000 to 60,000 men and women who've been missing since the 80s. I'd like to read a passage from an article that has been following this movement, just for us to really understand the gravity of this situation. I am the luckiest mother in Sri Lanka. I got my son's body back. There are thousands of mothers who never get their children's bodies back. Dr. Manarani Saravanamutu was speaking after the inquest of her son, journalist and writer Richard de whose tortured body had washed up on a beach in Maratua in February 1990. Richard was dragged from home by armed men in the middle of the night. Dr. Saravanamutu's experience is one the speaker represents in the poem. She and other mothers of the disappeared had to give up the only photographs they had of their beloved. They had to conjure up faith in the prayers done on their behalf and had to appeal to a world that didn't care to learn their names or even the names of their dead. The speaker delineates these tragedies so painfully well that you can really imagine each scenario. One mother on her knees in prayer, having propped up her only image of her child among the religious paraphernalia like a shrine. Or, imagine these astounding lines. A mother whose own countenance howls in frames, the world scrolls past. Just imagine her face as she gets increasingly anguished by the state of her situation. Her frustration and sadness fuse to express the loss of her beloved and the indifference of the world around her. The stanzas ascribed to the Easter Sunday bombings detail the various tragedies that took place on that day. Holy we can just take it to have been a terrorist attack, but the speaker adds the finer distinctions that allow for a more meaningful reflection. As aforementioned, Three churches and three hotels were bombed. The speaker dedicates each stanza to illustrate a scene. In the first stanza, we are presented with a mother in a church with her young child, a mundane scene on the surface. It seems like it was just another Sunday in church. The second and third stanzas discuss the mothers of the disappeared, which we've just gone over. The fourth stanza is set at the morgue, where a mother who is only known as Amma, which means mother, is identifying her beloved by looking at wedding rings and blood-stained shoes. The fifth stanza is set in a hotel. A mother is with her hangry children in a line for a buffet. She stands in between them to prevent a fight, whilst wishing they had gone for a swim instead. This is such a congenial and innocent scene. The sixth stanza was elusive at first. I wondered, what did a mother with a baby keeping time inside her body, a mother with a bomb, mean? Well, this stanza was referring to one of the explosions that didn't happen in a church or hotel. When authorities arrived at the home of one of the suicide bombers, it was discovered that his pregnant wife blew herself and other children up. A mother with a baby, keeping time inside her body. A mother with a bomb. The seventh stanza and ending couplet are probably the most crushing for me, because this misfortune is made all the more apparent. A mother is in the kitchen, measuring sugar, generously at that, for the feast her children will relish when they get home from church. As she is partaking in this labour of love, it is supposed that the children are just about to say grace in Sunday school and probably make their way home, where their mother eagerly waits to celebrate with them. Alas, they never made it home. Or even at the church. The mother's really brings out the plight of women in developing nations. I don't mean that developing nations are all ridden with conflict, but I hope this brings the feminist politics of location to mind. In a very subtle way, this piece honours femininity and motherhood, which appear to be estranged from feminism as we know it today. Now that we, through this poem, have stepped out of Western feminist discourse, how about we head over to the mother of mankind to explore African feminism?
5: Our own
6: shadows disappear as the feet of thousands by tens of thousands pound the fallow land into new dust that, rising like a marvelous pollen, will be fertile. Even as the first woman, whispering imagination to the trees around her, made for righteous fruit from such deliberate, defense of life, as no other still will claim inferior to any other safety in the world. The whispers, too, they intimate to the inmost ear of every spirit, now aroused, they carousing in ferocious affirmation of all peaceable and loving amplitude, sound a certainly unbounded heat from a baptismal smoke where, yes, there will be fire. And the babies cease alarm as mothers raising arms and heart high as the stars so far unseen nevertheless hurl into the universe a moving force irreversible as light years traveling to the open eye. And who will join this standing up? And the ones who stood without sweet company will sing and sing back into the mountains and, if necessary, even under the sea. We are the ones we have been waiting
0: for. That was Lebohang Mashile, a South African poet who beautifully recited a piece by Jamaican-American poet June Jordan. It is titled Poem for South African Women. Jordan wrote extensively on issues of gender and race and is noted for her use of Black English as a way to teach others about Black culture and to distinguish it as its own language. This particular poem was written to commemorate the 20,000 South African women who had a march at the Union buildings in Pretoria on the 9th of August, 1956. This day is celebrated as National Women's Day in the country. The demonstration was against the introduction of apartheid pass laws that forced black women to carry passes and permits. The protest was also for the presentation of a petition. To the then Prime Minister, J.G. Stradom. The turnout was one of the largest for its time, and part of what made it so significant and successful is expressed in the following quote Many of the African women wore traditional dress. Others wore Congress colors, green, black, and gold. Indian women were clothed in white saris. Many women had babies on their backs, and some domestic workers. Brought their white employers' children along with them. Throughout the demonstration, the huge crowd displayed a discipline and dignity that was deeply impressive. Yet, the Prime Minister or any of his staff did not make an effort to see the women. Surpassing that incivility is the fact that these women proved that the stereotype of women as politically inept, immature, and tied to the home was outdated and totally inaccurate. This introduces our probe into African feminism. African feminism is feminism innovated by African women attuned to the African continent. It has been suggested that African feminism became necessary partly due to white Western feminism's exclusion of the experiences of black women and continental African women. White Western feminism has a history of not taking into account the particular issues black women face at the intersection of both their blackness and womanhood. Currently, white feminism often classifies African women as women of colour, which groups and thereby neglects the African woman's historical track and specific experience. Of course, Africa consists of 54 countries, each with their own culture most African feminist thought originates from Egypt, Nigeria, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Ghana, Kenya, Senegal, and South Africa. As African feminism seeks to address a variety of cultural issues, it manifests in various strains, and I will define them briefly. First, we have motherism. Motherism, as described by Catherine Obianuju Acholonu, comprises motherhood, nature, and nurture. A motherist is someone who is committed to the survival and maintenance of Mother Earth, and someone who embraces the human struggle. In her book, Motherism, the Afrocentric Alternative to Feminism, Achilonu clarifies that a motherist can be a woman or a man. It is not selective of sex, because at the core of motherism is partnership, cooperation, tolerance, love, understanding, and patience. Next, we have femalism. This is a theory developed by Professor Chioma Opara, wherein she describes the female body as a site of patriarchal abuse and violence. In the context of the African continent, it is the bearer of European colonialism and exploitation. She likens the female body to Mother Nature and draws parallels between African nations mutilated by wars, poverty and disease and the battered female body. Next we have snail-sense feminism. This theory is proposed by academic and poet Akachi Adimora Ezeigbo. Snail-sense feminism encourages women to work slowly like a snake in her dealings with men in the tough patriarchal society. This implores women to learn what she calls survival strategies. Overcome social impediments and hence live a good life. Interestingly, she has a lot to say about Nigeria's political landscape, especially the deviant behavior male politicians engage in. In a short satirical piece titled Brave Stab, she brings attention to the politicians' peculiar obsession with sex. It reads These men permanently stand for erection rather than election. The nation must call them to action. Sex scandal must cease. Next we have Stewanism. It was conceptualized by Omolara Ogundipe Leslie. The Stewa in Stewanism stands for Social Transformation Including Women in Africa. Ogundipe Leslie recognized that feminism was a contentious subject in African culture. A line from her publication reads, The word feminism itself seems to be a kind of red rag to the bull of African men, which is why Stewanism presents itself as a pragmatic approach to addressing African women's oppression whose roots are admittedly convoluted. She asserts that the struggles African women endure are perpetuated because they have internalized the patriarchy and endorse the colonial and neocolonial structures that naturally place men on top. The next strain is Nego feminism, which is the feminism of negotiation. The Nego, as explained by Obioma Naimeka, stands for No Ego in that this strain of feminism recognizes the importance of negotiation and compromise in African culture when wanting to achieve social change. In her publication, Nyameka writes that African feminism works by knowing when, where, and how to detonate, meaning set off, and go around patriarchal landmines. The last strain is African womanism. Womanism is a social theory based on the history and everyday experiences of black women. It holds that femininity and culture share equal importance in a woman's life. Her culture is not an element of her femininity, but it is the lens through which her femininity is understood. In the case of a black woman, her blackness is not a component of her femininity. Rather, it is the lens through which she understands her femininity. African womanism has two conflicting descriptions. The first description, by Dr. Naomi Nkiala, who is an African, states that womanism isn't part of African feminism as it pertains to African women of the diaspora, that is, African women outside Africa, and not continental African women. The second descriptor is called Africana womanism, which was coined by Clonora Hudson-Weems, who is an African-American, who defined Africana as being inclusive of women on the African continent and women in the African diaspora. She calls for a complete separation from white feminism, a movement which she states was created by and for white women without any incorporation of the African experience. It brings to question how much she knows about the African experience as an African-American. It's also important to note that Hudson Weems was inspired by Sojourner Truth and her Ain't I a Woman speech. Now that we are familiar with the isms under African feminism, let's get to know our first poet, Dr. Stella Nyanzi.
5: Hi, Stella.
1: Stella Nyanzi has a reputation on social media of being a free-spirited PhD holder who doesn't care much about the conventional roles expected of women in Uganda's conservative society. She's a medical anthropologist who studied in the University of London. Nyanzi says her character was shaped by her mum.
5: Our mother raised us to be strong and reliant, uh, self-reliant really. Uh, we relied on our little circle of five. mummy, Stella, Susan, Barbara, who's also called Sison, and Sheila. The S rhymes with hiss. We hiss like snakes. Our mother, the Bible says, eh? be wise as a
1: As an academic, she studied youth sexuality, which partly explains her rather bizarre comments.
5: It took undressing for them to say, by the way, where's Nyanzi's Every person that I have written to that was silent I drait, I and then I became the criminal. I was criminalized for appealing for help.
1: On Monday morning the dispute between her and the executive director of the Macari Institute of Social Research, Professor Mahmoud Mamdani, over a new PhD programme left many in shock when she undressed and uttered swear words. People
5: ask what I smoke, I smoke inquiry. You know, I smoke questioning. I smoke pondering. I smoke thinking and thought and philosophizing.
1: A refusal to teach in a PhD.
0: That was Dr. Stella Nyanzi, who made her dissatisfaction known by protesting in the nude. I appreciate her comment towards the end. She took a question that was meant to demean her that is, what do you smoke? And she owned it, turning it on its head, answering that she smokes questioning, thought, and philosophizing. If it's not obvious, she's quite the personality, and she channels her audacious character in her writing. I am reading to you Women Shall No Longer Wait by Dr. Stella Nyanzi. Women shall no longer wait for absent men to drive these poisonous snakes out of houses. We pick up your machetes, rusting away, and chop the venomous snakes into many pieces. Women shall no longer wait for castrated men to carry the coffins of kin killed by the state. We wear your trousers and your kanzus and lift the caskets to the graves dug by ourselves. Women shall no longer wait for timid men to fight for the liberation of Uganda. We pack missiles in our own pens and grenades in our mouths and shoot our truths at the dictatorship. Women shall no longer wait for blinded men to drive us to the beautiful promised land. We thicken the muscles of our legs and ride ourselves to freedom on bicycles and cars. Women shall no longer wait for faceless men. To woo, love, or pleasure us. We wear dildos dipped in oil and inseminate ourselves with the strongest sperm. Need I say any more? This poem is a captivating expression of independence, delineating the many ways in which women can take up what are deemed to be mantles of masculinity. The mantles described in the poem are bravery, in that women shall take it upon themselves to defend themselves from harm. They shall have the backbone, wear the trousers and attend to injustices done by the state. They will be the ones to fight for liberation, to take themselves to the promised land. And in what I think is the greatest claim of independence, They will rely on themselves for their own pleasure. Truly, a powerful way to end the poem. Everything before the last stanza is for the good of society, protection, liberation and tending to injustice. Whereas love and pleasure are so distinctive. And the speaker proclaims that with the same will and strength, women shall find it within themselves to fulfill that distinctive need. Deeming men null and void, right? Or at least the absent, castrated, timid, blinded, and faceless men. Ironically, all these types of men that women shall no longer wait for bear traits that are somewhat associated with femininity. Being timid, castrated in a figurative sense, blinded, i.e., submissive and faceless, which could mean not having an identity separate from a man, but I think that's a reach. Could we then surmise that women shall no longer wait for emasculated men, or or that the men in Yanzi's context are all emasculated and so women must realize their potential? There's lots we can derive from this, especially if we consider African family dynamics and the subject of single mothers. Our next poet is Igioma Umebino. She is a Nigerian writer who challenges the culture of silence in her homeland. This culture of silence permits the abuse of women and victim blaming. These are topics she addresses fervently. She writes short pieces, so I'll read a couple. They don't have titles, by the way. The first reads, I did not know the bodies of women we meant to be a museum of tragedies, as if we were meant to carry the ocean without drowning. Before I talk about this, I want to warn that I will be talking about sexual assault, so please use the timestamps if you do not feel comfortable listening to this section. I think the museum of tragedies coincides with the alarming rates of child sexual assault it is definitely a widespread issue. In Nigeria, almost 3 in 10 adults know someone who was sexually assaulted in their childhood. In South Africa, it is estimated that over 40% of women will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime and that only 1 in 9 of those assaults are reported. Victims go on with their lives laden with this tragedy and because of the culture of silence, They are vulnerable to reoffense and mental harm. And their bodies exhibit the order of tragedy, like a museum. Rarely is it one tragedy. Instead, it is one tragedy that introduces a host of others. Which is why I think the word museum emphasizes that these tragedies don't exist in isolation. The next poem reads, I am woman enough to know you do not force womanhood out of girls, that you do not shame the bodies of girls, forcing them to carry themselves like an apology, to hold sorry on their lips. This poem touches on the ways in which patriarchy impacts women and girls. Let's refer to the theory of snail-sense feminism that encourages women to develop survival strategies to overcome social impediments so that they can live a quote, good life. The survival strategy being criticized here is the expectation for young girls to assume a lowly perspective of themselves, insecure and ever apologetic, as a way for them to make their way through life with little opposition. In Umebino's words, this form of patriarchy works systematically to disempower girls and women as they are stuck in a cycle of insecurity and self-blaming. These two pieces are from her book, Questions for Ada. So that settles our exploration of African feminism. Let's get into the relationship between Islam and feminism, get to know some poets and thinkers, and have a go at some pieces relating to this relationship.
7: It's the Arab world's version of American Idol, where, believe it or not, you become an instant star by reciting poetry,
6: man
7: after man talking about soccer, life in the desert, and then a shock. In full niqab, a Saudi Arabian woman, Hessa Halal, knees knocking.
2: I am a strong woman. I am brave. This is the first time I'm standing in front of all of these men.
7: She knew in her country there would be scorn, death threats, and there were. After all, Saudi women can't drive, can't travel, go to college without permission of a male. But her husband said he would support her, for their four young daughters, the youngest autistic and cannot speak at all. And so she recited her poem. I send you meaning like rain, to defeat fear. And then, addressing the punitive authorities, she said,
5: Do not fear
7: his snake hiss. You have a waving wing when you fly. No one can reach you in the sky. After the shock, she says, people came in droves to support her.
2: What I'm seeing
1: is a lot of courage out there. A lady, she's speaking out, and she's in niqab. That's something amazing for me.
7: As for the judges, they praised her courage, but only gave her third place. Though the prize is big, $800,000. Though in Saudi Arabia, her husband will decide how to spend it. No matter, she told us, for one moment, one woman in Saudi Arabia spoke the truth.
2: I always tell myself, maybe hasa- One day you will be like a message in a bottle. I mean, you reach to the other side of the sea and it happened
7: A voice from behind the veil heard around the world. And so we choose Hessa Halal and her message sent out to the world.
0: I'm a woman, and for an extremist, there is no greater sin than a woman's embrace of literature and poetry. That is a quote by Saudi Arabian poet Hissa Hilal, who is known for expressing her attitudes towards the Salafi way of life that has been taken to be the norm in her home of Saudi Arabia. The Salafia movement champions an early Sunni school of thought and is known as traditionalist theology. Salafis place great emphasis on practicing actions in accordance with the known Sunnah. Which are the sayings and practices of the Prophet Muhammad? Some scholars and activists propose that the Quran be the only source for guiding the relations between the sexes, because other sources, such as the Hadith and Sunnah, are understandings of the Quran influenced by a hierarchical and patriarchal society, and a great portion of the commentators in these sources were men. The poem I am about to read to you is titled The Chaos of. Fatwas. A fatwa is a legal opinion or decree handed down by an Islamic religious leader. Hilal describes her feelings towards extremism and the division it reaps. I have seen evil from the eyes of the subversive fatwas, in a time when what is lawful is confused with what is not lawful. When I unveil the truth, A monster appears from his hiding place, barbaric in thinking and action, angry and blind, wearing death as a dress and covering it with a belt. He speaks from an official, powerful platform, terrorizing people and preying on everyone seeking peace. The voice of courage ran away and the truth is cornered and silent. When self-interest prevented one, from speaking the truth as you heard in the clip at the start hilal's presence on a competition stage was quite the demonstration she has remarked that following the dominance of traditional theology of which the decree of fatwas is a component there was a certain air of haughtiness in the attitudes of many observant arab muslims quote some men with beards and women in niqab started giving everybody the I'm better than you look. There is a Wikipedia page that lists an assortment of fatwas that have been decreed, some being opposed by other Muslim authorities because of their absurdity. I encourage you to go have a read at some of them. In a male-dominated competition, Hilal came forward and defended her opinion by saying that it is extremism that sees her and her talent for literature as being at odds with religion, rather than proper Islamic beliefs. So what do proper Islamic beliefs say about women? This leads me to read a passage from a publication titled Reconciling Islam with Feminism by Iman Hashim. Feminists have tended to regard religion as just another of the sources of women's subordination, citing the manner in which women are often represented as subordinated in religious texts and the frequency with which religion is used to justify and maintain men's dominant positions in society. Although these charges are levelled at all the major religions, Islam in particular has a reputation for being anti-woman and for supporting a segregated social system where men are economically and politically marginalised. Many Muslim women and men disagree with such a view, arguing that the Qur'an provides significant rights for women, which are often far more wide-reaching than the rights which secular legal systems provide for a state's female citizens. However, many Muslims are frequently mistrustful of feminism because they see the feminist emphasis on equal rights as at odds with the Islamic notion of the complementarity of the sexes and the specific roles and rights laid down for men and women, which they believe reflect their particular strengths and weaknesses. Some scholars identify two aspects of Quranic instruction, the socio-economic and the ethical-religious categories. While women's status is inferior to men in the former category, socio-economic, they are full equals in the latter, ethical-religious. Muslim reformists argue that the difference between men and women in the socio-economic sphere belongs to the category of social relations, which are subject to change, whereas their moral and religious equality belongs to the category of religious duties towards God, which are immutable. The moral and religious equality of men and women represents the highest expression of the value of equality, and therefore constitutes the most important aspect of Islamic instruction. Since men and women are full equals in creation, in mind, and in their spiritual and moral obligation, there is no justification for inequalities between the sexes. So there is a lot to unpack there, and I probably won't do it all in this episode. But the main point I got is, despite it not aligning with secular feminist values, Islam shows no inequality towards the sexes because men and women were made with complementary roles and are ultimately equal on a moral and spiritual basis, that is, in the eyes of God. And that is a similar response in other Abrahamic religions. Having said that, I think the secular feminist critique is to what extent can a suppressive rule over women be justified as a daring? To religious instruction. Something to contemplate. Now, when we think of Islamic feminism, there are considerations that it is paradoxical and oxymoronic. Still and all, Islamic feminism speaks on behalf of women who don't want to choose between secular or Western feminist emancipation and their belonging to Islam as a culture and religion. They position themselves as Muslim women who are not blind to or passive towards patriarchy. But instead, they aim to produce an alternative to secular feminism. So in the same light of African feminism, Islamic feminism is feminism by Muslims attuned to Islam. One of the oldest thinkers associated with Islamic feminism is Jamil Sidki al-Zahawi. He was an Iraqi poet and philosopher. Al-Zahawi was a critical figure in the development of Arabic literary modernism and a scholarly and outspoken contributor to political and social debates during the early part of the 20th century. Al-Zahawi saw poetry as a revolutionary tool for communicating social critiques. He was a staunch advocate for women's rights, going so far as encouraging that they abandon the veil. With regards to this matter, he is quoted as saying, A veil does not protect a girl's chastity, but her education and science protects her. He was involved in the politics of the Ottoman Empire and was affiliated with the Young Turks. He was also a critic of the Wahhabis, which are the extremist group that founded the Saudi Kingdom, and he was an avid observer of the political currents in Europe. Al was a proud man and at the same time self contemptuous. At the end of his life, he said about himself In my childhood, I was thought of as eccentric because of my unusual gestures. In my youth, as feckless because of my ebullient nature, lack of seriousness, and excessive playfulness. In my middle age, as courageous for my resistance to tyranny. And in my old age, as an apostate because I propounded my philosophical views. The opinion that deemed him an apostate was his quote-unquote faith in the theory of evolution, which is contrary to the views of the Arab community in his time. He also published a number of works on the subject of astronomy, including the universe, gravitation, and its explanation. These theories later turned out to have fundamental flaws. With regards to his style of writing, he made it a point to always be simple and to avoid the artifice and false conceits that traditional poets employed. He was the first Kurdish poet to use blank verse, which is free of rhyme. This is because he saw it better for a writer to focus on expressing ideas rather than preoccupying themselves with a rhyme scheme. Another of his advocacies was against the practice of older men marrying adolescent girls, as well as forced marriage without previous acquaintance, polygamy and male privileges. This is expressed in a poem titled Equality in Age. It reads, How many men of sixty have married adolescents, Their grey hair burning as fire on their heads? For an unknown term, he does his work with her, and it might be short that term. And the tether of kindness afterward is his last concern, whether it stretches between them or not. She married without apprehending her future misery. Is her husband one of the ogres or a man? He curses her, not for a sin then kicks her. She bears all his insults. And after that, he scurries off as an ostrich would to his friends, dry inside as dead wood. Four, never enough to satisfy his insatiable hunger, while for a wolf, one lamb satiates. Her family forced her to marry the rich, coveted old sheikh. In his house he has wives, three, but the sheikh wished four. She sleeps with him in the house, as he is old as her father. Tell us, how is the union made? In the house she will live miserable or die depressed. Death by sorrow is better. In the house sorrow, misery and despair will appear. To her as ghosts, she will receive disasters as guests. And she has wedded to the sheikh, giving as her gift, her misery, a gift he greatly enjoyed. She begged him, please, sheikh, don't bring me your desire. You are my father, but even older. If your grey hair didn't deter me, your ignorance would. The sheikh refused to fetter his lust, unhappy to leave what he expected. He puffed angrily, angling his brow, and grabbed her as she pushed him away, telling her, Asma, you are mine by sharia, and what sharia makes mine shall obey. God in heaven made you mine. He is wise and prescribes the right and the wrong. When she saw there was no one to defend her, preserve her, from the sheik. When the sheik began to tire, she lifted a cup, prepared, with poison, and provoked, gulped it down. This is one of al-Zahawi's most celebrated works. It is immersive, provocative, and so insightful. The following lines, telling her. Asma, you are mine by Sharia, and what Sharia makes mine, shall obey. God in heaven made you mine. He is wise and prescribes the right and wrong. I think these lines summon the critique I mentioned earlier. To what extent can a suppressive rule over women be justified as merely adhering to religious instruction. I'm so captivated with the narration of this poem because it reveals the folly of child marriage and even arranged marriage. Considering the perspective of the woman was not usual, but the speaker includes it along with the sheikh's view, which paints a full picture. He thinks he is deserving of this fourth marriage. It is mandated by a divine law. But she, for all her adherence to this law, can see that it is not right. Quote, she begged him, please, shake, don't bring me to your desire, you are my father, but older. Once again, this full view confirms the folly of this marriage. With regards to child marriage, it's still prevalent in 117 countries around the world, so there's still much to be done. Next, I'd like to talk about sartorial piety, a.k.a. pious fashion. I'm sure you are familiar with the various types of head coverings adorned by most Muslim women, the popular being the hijab. In the West, the hijab, more so the act of covering up in accordance with Islam, has been a subject of contention. Take the ban of burkinis on France's southern beaches in July and August of 2016 or that in 2006 there were 154 cases of discrimination or harassment in which a muslim woman's head covering was identified as the factor that triggered the incident according to the american civil liberties union muslim women have been denied the right to wear a headscarf while working as police officers and in other occupations they have also been fired for refusing to remove their headscarves at schools Muslim girls who wear headscarves or whose mothers wear headscarves have been harassed or assaulted. Students have also been denied the right to wear a hijab to school. One popular reason for this conflict is the notion that Islam is in conflict with Western values. That is an intricate subject on its own, but not a justification for discrimination. The following poem by a Muslim woman living in the West sounds off the frustrations women like her bear. Being a woman of colour and adhering to a minority religion and culture. She also brings the hijab to our attention. As the wearer of one, she assures those against it that she is far from being oppressed by it. But you want to know who's really oppressing her? Well, that will follow in the poem. This is Ode to the West. By Fatima Lezaik I am a woman of colour, although my skin is as white as yours. I make my own decisions, and I'm sick of your terror wars. I am a woman who gets stared at daily. All eyes are always on me. I can't seem to walk freely in your country of liberty. I was raised to make my own decisions, No man tells me what to do. So listen, O West, I have some things to say to you. I am a woman of faith. Please tell me what is wrong with that. What's wrong with having something to believe in? Please tell me. Let's sit and have a chat. I am a woman of rich history and culture. A woman of the Arabian Nights and Mediterranean Sea. If you hate it here so badly, you say, then go back to your own country. Go back to your land, the one we keep invading, the one we peacefully visited, to lend our friendly hand. Go back to your land, the one we drained from oil, gold and jewels, the one we bomb daily and make sure the world never sees the news. Go back to your country, the one we left completely broken, the one we came to set free, but instead We left dead bodies as token. I can go on and on, but leave that for another day. Now I'm here because I'm sick of you judging me for dressing in a certain way. I am sick of your rumours and ugly misconceptions. I am sick of your disgusted stares. Yes, I can see it in your reflections. I am sick of you telling me how I should dress and how I should look. No wait, I'm confused. Aren't you the one that claims women are free? Oh dear West, excuse me, for thinking this also applied to me. My body, my choice, isn't that what you say? So why is it you get angry when I dress in a certain way? My body, my choice, isn't that what people hear? So why is it when I choose to cover my body and my hair, you get uncomfortable and always stare? My body, my choice. Isn't that supposed to be true? So why do you keep banning my burkini and want me to strip down to look like you? Are you afraid because I am different? Is this what it's all about? Are you intimidated by my restraint? My decision to cover and keep my body to myself? Is this what it's all about? Are you afraid of what women could do if they can't be controlled by people like you? Are you that threatened by a woman who covers her hair? Are you so insecure, so afraid of what I wear? Is this why you keep spreading false information? Why you tell the world I am oppressed and need liberation? Is this why you're banning me from attending your universities? Are you afraid of what the world would do if they realize that the one oppressing me is you? Let me explain it to you, O West in a language that you can understand. Hopefully you won't be afraid any more, and won't see my veil as a crime so grand. That piece of clothing on my head, it's called a hijab. It covers my hair, not my brain. It's part of who I am and has nothing to do with you. No one forced me to wear it. No one forced me to cover. My father treats me like a princess and I'm so spoiled by my brothers. Oh, and as for my husband, no, he doesn't treat me like a slave. He loves me so dearly, it encourages me to be strong and brave. He treats me like his equal and doesn't think of me as less. But guess what, oh West, he doesn't ask to split the bill in two. I guess this is one of the many differences between me and you. I am a woman of colour, with hopes and dreams like you a woman who struggles daily to get equal job opportunities. I am a woman of colour who is also a proud woman of faith. I am a woman, a human being, who happens to be born in a different part of the world than you. So can you try, O West, for just a moment, to switch places between me and you? Can you try to understand where I come from, try to walk a day in my shoes, Would you be okay with people looking down on you, like the way you look down on me? Would you be okay with people calling you names, always staring at you as you pass by? Would you be okay with being labelled? And if you're not, then tell me why. Why do you do it? Why do you think you should have a say in what I should wear? Why do you think I should even care? Why do you keep limiting my freedom? Why do you keep harassing me? Why can't you just let me be? If you haven't changed your mind, after all that's been said, still intimidated and disgusted of what I wear on my head, if you still think I am a victim, still think I am oppressed, then you should know, O West, that yes, I am oppressed. And yes, it's all true. But the one oppressing me is not them. It's you. What a way to end. The speaker's frustration is very perceptible. I do feel that at certain points of the poem, her protest is repetitive. She kind of loses her rhythm and rhyme scheme, and she could have used different and more illustrative words. That being said, this is a very passionate rebuttal against the idea that the hijab and even the notions within Islam are oppressive towards women. A good example of Islamic feminism, as we defined it before. I want to move on to discuss the relationship between the sexes, mainly in the Arab world, which have been heavily influenced by Islam. I will begin with this quote by Nizar Kabani, who is the poet for this discussion. Love in the Arab world is like a prisoner, and I want to set it free. I want to free the Arab soul, sense and body with my poetry. The relationships between men and women in our society are not healthy. Nizar Kabani was born in Damascus in 1923. His father was a businessman and Syrian nationalist who was frequently arrested because of his anti French activities. Kabani took after his father in that he was very political. In 1954, one of his most famous poems, titled Bread. Ashish, and the Moon, was a scathing attack on backwardsness in the Arab world. He wrote about the lack of human rights, the abundant corruption, and the low status of women in Arab society. The poem was so controversial that it was debated in the Syrian parliament, with some delegators contending that legal action had to be taken against him. Despite him expressing much despair in his writing, Habani's poetry is also romantic and elegant, and accessible to the average reader. Here is a poem that is on the more romantic side of his writing. It is titled, Love Compared. It reads, I do not resemble your other lovers, my lady. Should another give you a cloud, I give you rain. Should he give you a lantern, I will give you the moon. Should he give you a branch, I will give you the trees. And if another gives you a ship, I shall give you the journey. That was a nice read. Now let's talk about his advocacy for women's rights. Kabani wrote poetry with respectful reference to women and their point of view. When he was a teenager, his family tried to force his sister to marry someone she did not love. As a consequence, she took her own life which may explain why Kabani became such a strong advocate for women's emancipation. The poem to follow is titled I Have No Power, and it has been suggested that the subject of the poem, Who is a Woman?, was inspired by veteran actress Sophia Loren. She often starred in films as a sexually emancipated persona, and was prominent around the time the poem was written. Alternatively, It could be argued that he was exploring the contradictions in his society. I'll leave you to decipher. Here is I Have No Power by Nizar Kabani. I have no power to change you or explain your ways. Never believe a man can change a woman. Those men are pretenders who think that they created woman from one of their ribs. Woman does not emerge from a man's ribs, not ever. It's he who emerges from her womb. Like a fish rising from depths of water and like streams that branch away from a river. It's he who circles the sun of her eyes and imagines he is fixed in place. I have no power to tame you or domesticate you. Or mitigate your first instincts. This task is impossible. I've tested my intelligence on you. Also my dumbness. Nothing worked with you. Neither guidance nor temptation. Stay primitive as you are. I have no power to break your habits. For thirty years you have been like this. For three hundred years. A storm trapping in a bottle. A body by nature. Sensing the scent of a man, assaults it by nature, triumphs over it by nature. Never believe what a man says about himself, that he is the one who makes the poems and makes the children. It is the woman who writes the poems, and the man who sings his name to them. It is the woman who bears the children, and the man who signs at the maternity hospital that he is the father. I have no power to change your nature. My books are of no use to you, and my convictions do not convince you, nor does my fatherly counsel do you any good. You are the queen of anarchy, of madness, of belonging to no one. Stay that way. You are the tree of femininity that grows in the dark, needs no sun or water. You, the sea princess who has loved all man and loved no one, slept with all men and slept with no one. You are the Bedouin woman who went with all the tribes and returned a virgin. Stay that way. Think back to the words of Moderata Fonte when she expressed that the priority in creation didn't matter and if anything, it proved the superiority of women for men were born out of the lifeless earth in order that women could be born out of living flesh. In a very inversive way, Kabani says, Those men are pretenders who think that they created woman from one of their ribs. Woman does not emerge from a man's rib. Not ever. It's he who emerges from her womb, like a fish rising from depths of water, and like streams that branch away from a river. It's he who circles the sun of her eyes. And imagines he is fixed in place. Both use religious allegories to make the point of women's superiority, while Fonte plays along with the creation story. Cabani debunks the creation story. Quote, Woman does not emerge from a man's rib, not ever. It's he who emerges from her womb. Which could pose a challenge against the gender hierarchy found in religion he has made it clear that patriarchy is founded on these debatable ideas rather than being a divine and immutable order. In light of this, he says, I have no power to break your habits. I have no power to change your nature, though it has been taught to me that I do. And so he salutes the woman in her freedom as the queen of anarchy, of madness of belonging to no one the tree of femininity that grows in the dark that needs no rain or sun the sea princess who has loved all men and loved no one who has slept with all men and slept with no one the bedouin woman who went with all the tribes and returned a virgin that woman whichever woman she is ought to stay that way and that concludes our inquest in Islamic feminism. We're just about to end, but I'd like to take a detour and talk about misogynistic poetry, because it has an interesting history. Misogynistic or anti-feminist tradition, as it's called, dates back to the 15th century. A notable and supposed contributor to this tradition was Geoffrey Chaucer, who is considered the father of English lit. Some hold the opinion that he was an early feminist, while promotion of sexual misconduct and assault can be picked from his work. He is considered to be an early feminist because of the characters in the Canterbury Tales, his best-known work. There are three pilgrims who are women, who are given voice, which wasn't the norm, and the female narrator was given more elaborate character traits than the male narrators. Conversely, The Miller's Tale and the Reaver's Tale, unfortunately, depict women as enjoying or easily recovering from said misconduct and assault. Countering his problematic tales was our girl Christine de Pizan. Isn't it nice to see how everything is just aligning? So before we get into our selected sonnet, let's get a bit more context. Writers of misogynistic satire would associate women with animals. The theological tradition, first espoused by early church fathers, contained teachings that claimed women to be closer to the body than men, as Adam was created in God's image, rendering men more spiritual, while Eve was created from Adam's rib, rendering women more bodily. This thought generated the idea that women were more sexual than men, and were thus slandered as sexually insatiable to a beastly and even feral degree. I am reading you Like the She-Cats in January by an anonymous 15th-century poet. Just like the she-cats in January go about fleeing with rage, so too goes my lady, every man should know down upon the houses, seeking respite. And if she can't find one who can fill her bushel, she goes about driving storms and such big lips, and fire seems to come out of her cage, until her large inkwell is satisfied. If, by disgrace, she can't find any pen that will give her its ink, she melts away like newly fallen snow. She quickly finds a way, Into such a wide street, she thrusts your pustule. Until it needs to shoot out, she'll remain atop you. So many innuendos, right? I'm reading you a very small section of an analysis done by Fabian Alfie. The opening quatrain sets the tone for the entire sonnet. In the third verse, the poet portrays the sonnet as a warning by men for other men, a typical strategy of misogynistic writers. The poet uses insulting and exaggerated language and indicates sexual organs and activities in remarkably blunt terms. Blunt language was a defining characteristic of satire in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. The term satire was etymologically derived from satyr, and since satyrs were nude, so too did satires use unadorned language. The linguistic simplicity of satires helped poets fulfill their roles in decrying unethical behaviors. It is difficult to discern any ethical intentions in the sonnet at first, as it seems to be little more than an ugly portrayal of a sexually aroused woman but it derives its morality from the literary tradition of misogynistic satire, which is the attempt to dissuade men from love and sexual contact with women. In the insipid verse, the writer compares the woman to a cat in her heat, meaning when a cat is in high fertility or something like that. The author bases his insipid verse on the observation that cats typically mate late in the winter, like cats in heat, he writes, the lady's lust has driven her mad. The comparison to the cat dehumanizes the woman, thus rendering her at the same level as an animal. The author of the sonnet, like many other misogynistic writers, represents her lust as debasing her human nature. Reinforcing the debasement, she is described as insane, devoid of any human reasoning women were commonly viewed as naturally more prone to lustfulness and less intellectually developed than men. The poet simply extends these commonplace ideas about women to their logical extreme. Something to really mull over, right? I'd say we've come a long way, but that's debatable and relative, especially when we look at the 15th century in comparison to our first appearance some hundred thousand years ago. I'm sure if you've listened this far, you're probably opposed to the 15th century thinkers. But thank goodness their view isn't the consensus anymore. Let's wrap this up. The future of feminism. The future is female. You've most likely seen the latter phrase plastered across all kinds of surfaces. Alas, the future is no longer elusive to us. It seems like it's going to be female. The last poem I will read to you is by the youngest inaugural poet and National Youth Poet Laureate, Amanda Gorman. She recited this poem at Forbes Women's Summit in 2019. It is titled The Way Forward. It reads, What is the way forward? when women have met many roadblocks instead of roads? What is the way forward, when on this path we've carried hefty burdens and heavy loads? In many ways, today at Forbes, is to open up a door, because we know we cannot afford to keep women away from the table. In many ways, today at Forbes, is a declaration that women are light, orbs, beacons, a formidable force. Be reckoned with, that we beckon to the front of the conversation. And though we are all here by invitation, we don't need an invitation to make change in our neighbourhoods, our cities, our nations, to reclaim our time, to make the climb, to be the skinny poet at Forbes dropping rhymes. We're devoted to doers and doings, women and what they're pursuing. In all the speeches, panels and interviewing, there is a thunder of the movement that is brewing. We are not the sand simply taking in the water of the sea it absorbs. We are the shore, we are the storm, the very form of change. Women are that great foray towards what the world's been waiting for. You see, the way forward isn't a road we take. The way forward is a road women make, not just at Forbes, but for all, forged forth by a future that is female. We will not be slowed. Come, the loads, roadblocks, hills that may, we'll keep fulfilling this path until the world goes still to say, where there's will, there's a woman, and when there's women, there is always a way. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you giving your time. If this is your first listen, I hope this was impressionable enough for you to join me again for another episode. If you're returning, your loyalty is unmatched and received with much gratitude. As always, my email is open for any further discussion on a topic, episode suggestions and even submissions. What poem resonated with you in this episode? Which thinker do you agree or disagree with? I'd be happy to know. If you know someone who will enjoy this episode, I invite you to share it with them. Till next time.